or everything that we mention in today's episode, you can check out in the show notes. And that's over at melissaambrosini.com forward slash 436. And before we dive in, I just need to let you know that the views expressed in this podcast are those of the guest and do not reflect the views of the Melissa Ambrosini show or myself, Melissa Ambrosini. The content in this show is for entertainment purposes only and not to be taken as medical advice. Please consult your healthcare professional before making any changes to your health or lifestyle. Now, let's dive in. In episode 436 with Donnie Yance, we dive deep into COVID and vaccinations, plus so much more. Welcome to the Melissa Ambrosini Show. I'm your host, Melissa, best-selling author of Mastering Your Mean Girl, Open Wide and Comparisonitis. And I'm here to remind you that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word. Each week, I'll be getting up close and personal with thought leaders from around the globe, as well as your weekly dose of motivation so that you can create epic change in your own life and become the best version of yourself possible. Are you ready, beautiful? Hey, beautiful, and welcome back to the show. I am really excited that you are here because today we are diving deep into COVID and vaccinations, which is a topic that I have not covered deeply on the show, but you guys have been asking so much. So I wanted to find the best people out there that had done their research and who know what they're talking about. So this is one of those episodes and I have another one coming out very soon that's also going to dive deep into it even further. So today we talk about the vaccinations, natural immunity, different variants, shedding. We talk about who should not get vaccinated, powerful natural healing practices, natural detox protocols, how to boost your immune system before you get the vaccination and what you can do after, plus so much more. And for those of you that have never heard of Donnie, he is an internationally known master herbalist and nutritionist. And he also takes into account the spiritual aspects of healing, which I absolutely love. So he takes that into consideration when he's working with his clients. And he usually works mainly with people who have chronic illness and in particular cancer. So I'm so excited for you guys to hear this episode. He has also authored two books, Herbal Medicine, Healing and Cancer. And the other book is called Adaptogens in Medical Herbalism, Elite Herbs and Natural Compounds for Mastering Stress, Aging and Chronic Illness. Grab those books. They are amazing. And also, after decades of extensive research and clinical practice, he developed a comprehensive approach to healing called Madura Care. And you'll hear us talking about this throughout this episode. And he also has his own unique line of therapeutic grade botanical and nutritional supplements, which are amazing. And for everything that we mention in the show, you can check out in the show notes. And that's over at melissaambrosini.com forward slash 436. This is an episode that you are going to want your pen and paper out for, and you will want to share with everyone that you love. So without further ado, let's bring on the incredible Donnie Yance. Donnie, welcome to the show. I'm so excited for this conversation. But before we dive in, can you tell us what you had for breakfast this morning? (laughs) <laughs> well, I my breakfast is pretty straightforward. I have a big smoothie every morning that I make. So 
That's uh, I make it for myself and my wife alike. And let's see, I put in coconut water, usually sheep milk or goat milk yogurt, some coconut milk. I put in one of my products, Beyond Way. I put in some various green powders. And then I'll put in some frozen strawberries, maybe some frozen peaches or mangoes. And then I use something called fruit anthrocyanothens, which is a blend of maybe nine different wild berries that I put in. And it's, it needs to be refrigerated so it's not heavily pasteurized. And so that goes into my smoothie every morning. And so that's what I had this morning. Mm, yum. That sounds delicious. Oh, it tastes really good. And then I'll often put other herbs in it and different powdered extracts that I use. I'll put that in there as well. So I'll change it up a little bit from time to time. Different fruits, different types of yogurt, sometimes kefir as well. But I love having my smoothie every morning. Mm -hmm. Me too. I love smoothies so much. I think they're just one of the most delicious things when they're made well. Yes. I actually, almost every patient I work with, I put on what I call a medicinal smoothie recipe for them to take. And it's a great way because you can pack so much nutrition and you kind of start your day off that way. So even sometimes I'll tell people, even if the rest of your day is imperfect, you started your day off with all of your needs. And so now, as long as you're not really consuming things that are really bad for you, you really covered all your bases. And so everything on top of that is just additional. But uh, if you start off your day, not eat with a meal that isn't so healthy, you're really way behind the eight ball as the day goes on. I agree. What's in your medicinal smoothie recipe that you usually prescribe to your clients? Or is it different for every single person? Well, the basis is somewhat similar to mine, but then it starts to change for different patients' needs. And I might use ground flaxseed powder a lot. I, I work predominantly with people with cancer, so I'll use ground flaxseeds. We have a great powdered blend of sea vegetables that I really love. I'll even put that in my smoothie. They're hand-harvested off the coast of Southern Oregon called Nature Spirits. It's about five or six different seaweeds. Pretty much most of my patients get customized formulas. They'll They'll get a liquid herbal tonic, possibly a tea, and then they get what's called a powdered extract that's now custom blended for them because different herbs provide different benefits by how they've been prepared. A tea is not strong enough in many instances to do what I would like it to do, but in other instances, a tea is perfect. Fluid extracts, which are liquid, can extrapolate certain constituents of that plant and they're a great delivery system. But powdered extracts are also really good and unique because there's, they're able to concentrate the herbs so much more. So I use it all. I love herbs. And so. <laughs> yes, you are the adaptogen man. And thank you for sending us your book, which is huge. It's a massive book and we are so excited to dive into it. So thank you for sending that over. You're welcome. Now you help many very, very unwell people. And like you said before, you help a lot of people with cancer. That seems to be what a lot of people come to you for. So how did you get into this work? And have you always been into natural health? Yes, yeah, it's, it's a great question. So I think I started in high school. I first read a book called Back to Eden, which was written by Jethro Kloss, which is based in what we call Thompsonian herbalism, which is the most crude and oldest form of medicine. But it really touched my heart in a lot of ways, because all of a sudden I said, I look out the window and we see this bounty full of beautiful plants that have been used since the beginning of time for food and medicine and all kinds of other things. And so 
it sort of touched my heart. And I started working a natural food store at 15 or 16 years old. Then I had a girlfriend whose mom was really into health food as well. So all of a sudden I got exposure into to natural foods in a very good and positive way. Then I became very, I was a musician. So music has been a very important part of my life. Matter of fact, how I've developed a medical approach and a medical healing approach is very musical. So I use music as a way of understanding health and healing, not just music as it stands, but also what I call the musical mind. And I came to a crossroads at one point in my life. And then I'm very much a lover of theology. And so I, I spent three years in a Franciscan Byzantine monastery. And I looked myself in the mirror one day. I said, well, I love music. I'm a very good musician. And then I love being in religious life. But what's really my vocation? And what what is my real calling? And I said, I think working with people and helping them heal is in using plants and putting this all together is what I think I can do in a way, in a unique way that nobody else can do. So through much discernment and prayer, I decided that this was going to be my life, my devotion and my vocation and my mission. And then I got into cancer, mostly based upon maybe this was in 1987, 88, and I had never really worked with somebody with cancer before. And it was my first really challenging cancer patient. It was a young woman named Sinclair. And she was in her 30s and she had breast cancer. And I watched this woman go through the most horrific treatments, none of which worked for her. You know, complete dissections, all her lymph nodes taken out, chest wall radiation. Back then, mostly crude chemotherapy, a combination called CMF. And I watched her take this with so much grace and I wanted to help her so much. And my clinic back then, I'll never forget it. Her name was Sinclair. And we changed her name to St. Clair because she handled her disease with the utmost grace. I never saw her complain. And I got very close to her, which I love. I love being very intimate and close to people. And people that have life-threatening disease, you know, all of a sudden, their life looks very different to them. And I really am attracted to that personally, that, that intimacy that creates. And so after St. Clair passed away. Two days after she passed away, her mom and dad came in and brought me this ring and said, Sinclair just finished this ring like a day before she died and she wanted you to have it. And so I put the ring on my finger and I've never taken this ring off since that day ever. And so I said, now I know my calling. I said, I I need to really pursue this. And every day I study one to two hours a day, accumulate data. I write papers. Now I build this big medical model. We just published, we're going to be publishing a retrospective audit of 35 or so breast cancer patients. We are about to launch an academy, a two-year school in what we call Madiri Care, which is the system that, that I've developed. And we are, I call it a unitive model. A lot of people use words like complementary, integrative, alternative. And for me, the best kind of medicine is how you unite everything to serve the needs of the the patient or the person. Wow. I love that. And thank you for sharing that story. And I love that you're using music as a form of healing, which I want to hear more about. But firstly, can you tell us what is Madiri Care? Well, Madiri Care is this unitive model that years and years 
I've been working on and developing and the architect of it, although there are other contributors now as we build the school, there are several other people helping to create an organized medical system. So to explain it, I would say there are six toolboxes. So toolbox one is herbal or botanical medicine, which I call the soul of the system because that's my my love. Toolbox two is nutritional medicine, and that's more using nutrition as supplemental medicine. Toolbox three is dietary medicine, which is more what we eat. Toolbox four is lifestyle medicine. Toolbox five is modern pharmaceutical medicine. And toolbox six is spiritual care and spirituality, which is interwoven in all aspects of the system. Then there are three main targets we work on. One is the patient themselves, or we call the host. We use diagnostic lenses that are very subjective and really require developing a relationship with that person, understanding their constitution, understanding the energetics, their personality, their stress response, their eye health, their digestive health, their sleeping habits. So that's the first target we work in. The second area we work in is called the microenvironment, which is where we analyze a lot of laboratory tests, mostly blood work, but not entirely blood work. And then the third target is the disease itself, or what we call the characteristics of the cancer and the nature of the cancer, which we get through pathology, through what's called liquid biopsies, through molecular profiling. And then we use all these different lenses. Some are microscopic, some are telescopic. And like a great musical score, all of this is layered together and we start to develop a plan. And that plan is then developed in a way that has two goals in mind. How do you help someone live longer? How do you help them live better? That's always the objective. It sounds very thorough and individual, which is what we need to heal and thrive. Yes. And in that, like, let's say in the host area, we see our health through what I call three distinctive energies. So energy one, we call the essence or the vital essence, which is our endocrine health. Energy two is the life force or the vital force, which is how we extrapolate energy from the air we breathe, the nourishment we get from the air we breathe, from the food we consume. And how do we do two things with that? One is how do we make healthy cells and healthy molecules? And then two, how do we make energy? How efficient are we at making energy from that consumption? And then the third part of our energetic makeup is our spiritual nature, which is always about having an understanding of being loved, giving love, feeling a sense of purpose and a sense of belonging. And the root system is always the gold, is how to build robustness, How do we get our bodies to auto-regulate? How do we get our bodies to auto-organize at the molecular, cellular, and organ system level? And can we do this in a gentle way that the relationship of our own internal life force is intimately involved in our wellness? Because we believe that we actually are great at healing. We have this great life force within us. So we want to try to the best of our ability to work in harmony with that life force. And that's what plants are really good at doing. Plants know how to communicate. You know, people and plants have coexisted since the beginning of time. 
we know each other in a very beautiful and profound way. Absolutely. Given half the chance, the body is incredibly intelligent at healing and thriving. It is. And people, whenever we get symptoms, I always tell us we have to ask two questions. Are those symptoms part of the healing response and should not be suppressed? Or are symptoms part of what the disease is inducing? So like in cancer, for example, I talked about the microenvironment. So when we look at laboratory tests, even a simple CBC, you can extrapolate a lot of information from that. And then what we try to do is how do we take that microenvironment and make it the most adaptable and suited to maximize our own healing? And then how do we understand that microenvironment, which has to be hijacked by the cancer? Cancer can do no harm until it takes over the environment. That's what it does. And so we analyze things both to optimize it in a way that is conducive to that our health and the least conducive to the disease. And then the third thing we do is how do we target the disease? So targeting the cancer is step three, not step one. Step one is maximizing the health of the patient. Step two, altering the microenvironment to be optimizing to the health of the patient and non-conducive to the cancer. Step three is how do we target the cancer? Hmm, Makes so much sense. And now more than ever, I really feel there is so many people returning to natural and ancient healing practices to boost their immune system and prevent getting things like the COVID-19 virus. And I believe we are returning to them because they are so powerful and they work. What are some of the natural and ancient practices that you would recommend people employ into their everyday life starting today? So... First, I'll say in the Madiri care, there are thematic elements. And the first thematic element is just what you talked about. So it's ancient traditional medicine, which gives us wisdom. So wisdom is different than knowledge. We go, people go on the internet and they start searching for stuff and you're not going to get any wisdom. It was grandmothers and grandfathers that gave us wisdom and ancient traditional medical models have wisdom inherently built into them. So we build a platform that wisdom in traditional medicine, which is ancient and true, is our first thematic element. Then comes scientific modern knowledge. Then comes common sense and logic. Then comes musical intuition. Then comes prayer and love, because fear is the greatest obstacle to healing. And prayer and love are all about wellness and healing. So things that people can do Well, I've been talking a lot about herbs and plants. And so getting closer to the plant world in in every way, whether it be utilizing plants on a daily basis to help promote wellness, whether we are just going and bathing out in the forest, for example. So there's a whole type of medicine now called forest bathing. And it turns out that being around trees, particularly pine trees, without consuming anything, has tremendous healing capacity to help our nervous system, our endocrine system, and our immune system. So one thing we can do, even against COVID, is get outside and get in the woods and get with trees and plants because that's ancient traditional wisdom. Then we can bring it into our home and not just utilize it as food and consumption, but we can use plants to 
say, diffuse in our homes. Essential oils are great diffusers that help combat viruses and bacteria and other pathogens, and they lift our mood as well. So that's another thing that we can do. And the best thing to do is look to high quality herbs with an understanding that the root system of herbal medicine for me is this concept of utilizing adaptogens and many times what's called nervines, because sometimes it's not just enough to strengthen our bodies and our endocrine systems because our nervous systems are so beaten up as well. So I like to use a lot of nervines as well as adaptogens and what we call tonic herbs, which tonic herbs aren't meant to treat anything. They're meant to tonify and strengthen our whole awareness, you know, within and then help us respond better and recover better in our body. So those would be some of the ways that we can use ancient traditional healing modalities in our daily life right here and now. One of the many things I love about your work is just how deep you've been going into the science of COVID and vaccinations. Your blog at donnyance.com is full of citations and you approach this with an open mind, which I love, to determine what is really going on and how best to approach this for your clients, which I just love. And it's well documented that there is most definitely an issue with vaccine safety. This cannot be debated anymore. So how can we turn towards Mother Nature to minimize some of these risks? Maybe we could look at things that we could do before someone chooses to get vaccinated or what they could do after. Can you talk about that and how we can support our bodies and what we could do? Well, I'll always utilize all of those toolboxes as I named. And so there's the dietary toolbox. So let's start with that area. So I provide several recipes that people can do. One is a simple hot and sour soup, very good for the immune system. Another is a Eastern European food that's often eaten at Eastern Passover time, which is beets and horseradish. So horseradish is filled with 27 isothiocinates that have tremendous health benefits, which include helping us combat viruses and bacteria. And you can just feel horseradish right away when you consume it up into your sinuses, right? And so, and beets, beets have the, are one of the best ways to boost nitric oxide. So what does nitric oxide do but cause induced vasodilation so we oxygenate our bodies better. We don't take in more oxygen. And so there are a lot of things, Parmesan cheese, Reggiano Parmesan cheese. It's one of the best probiotic foods that you could ever consume in the world. And one of the best turns out to be one of the best foods for our immune system. So there's all these ways with food, but when we strengthen our gut health, we're making our immune system much, much healthier. And if we're staying away from things like, to the best of our ability, antibiotics, proton pump inhibitors, steroids, all of the typical medications that people think are inert in many ways are highly problematic. Then we look at the most nutritional deficiencies we see in our society are vitamin D deficiency, zinc deficiency, one and two easily, even selenium deficiency because selenium is not in our soil. So these are key nutrients to how our immune systems work. We don't have to say they treat disease. All we know is that 
when we have inadequate levels of these important nutrients, our immune system does not work optimally. So again, the first thing we want to do is optimize our health in a general way and now in an immunological way. So those are things that we need to be thinking about doing. And then certain compounds, what we call often secondary compounds in foods and in herbs, say a flavonoid like quercetin or a terpenine like limonene, we can consume. So limonene is in the citrus, in the oranges, in the actual peel. It's what gives the orange that smell that when we peel an orange. Limonene has tremendous health benefits, including being a good inhibitor of viruses. And so we can savor or we can drink our fresh squeezed orange juice with pomegranate in it, which I love. That's one of my favorite drinks is a fresh squeezed orange juice and a fresh squeezed pomegranate together. And then save our peels, put our peels in our tea, put our peels in different food that we might uh, consume on top of a salad. And then we get into, you know, more medicinal things to do. And so, for example, I use various herbal formulas that are based in traditional herbs that have been used for hundreds, if not thousands of years to combat acute viruses. Some of those herbs would include honeysuckle, for example, a herb called boneset, herbs like elderflower, elderberry, ginger, even peppermint. These are propolis is, a, is probably, if you had asked me, Melissa, Donnie, all right, you can only have one herb. You can only have one substance in the world. If you want a deserted island somewhere else, what would it be? It would be propolis. Propolis is the most powerful substance in the world to me, combating an array of pathogens. And propolis is the, the resin that bees take from trees and they mix it inside their bodies. So the bees take the resin from the trees and they mix it in their bodies and then they regurgitate it and they use it to stick their hive together. And they also use it to purify their hive, which is very, very antiseptic. So propolis is also got tremendous antiviral properties and antibacterial properties, even shown to be effective against MRSA, shown to even work in resistance strains of various bacteria to potentiate other compounds, antibiotics. And so there are all kinds of levels of how I utilize the soul of Madiri Care, which is herbal medicine. What are your thoughts on some of the other well-documented protocols for COVID, such as the protocols that include ivermectin, as well as monocolon antibodies and hydroxychloroquine versus herbal alternatives? So first of all, I'm an herbalist. And so I'm always going to utilize my own toolbox first and foremost, particularly when I have so much faith in herbal medicine. So I have never used ivermectin. I've never used it in a way that I've recommended it, but I've reviewed all the literature and I think it's a shame that in our country and that our CDC and our media is painting it to be some useless, potentially dangerous substance when it, you know, the inventor of ivermectin won a Nobel Prize for it and it's probably saved millions of people from blindness and possibly even death. And so when I review the literature, it's very clear to me that ivermectin has been shown to be effective. So 
I don't recommend it. I don't use it, but I am a believer based on a very careful analysis of all the data to date that it's useful. Monoclonal antibodies up to Omicron, the new variant that we have, has been shown to be helpful. So of all the therapeutics, the monoclonal antibodies have been probably the most effective, but they're not showing to be that effective with our new variant. Hydroxychloroquine is useful, particularly when combined with zinc. So again, I think that it's not a breakthrough miracle in every case, but I definitely feel that based on the literature and the review, particularly when combined with zinc, it can be a tool in the toolbox for people that choose to use therapeutics, pharmaceutical therapeutics. But again, I'm an herbalist. I love plants. That's what I use. Mm. On your website, you cite a study done in Israel that found the vaccinated to have 27 times higher risk of symptomatic infection than those who recovered from COVID-19. Can you talk about that? And what is the science showing us about the real effectiveness of the vaccines against COVID and its variants? So again, it's clear to me, if you review all the literature in a non-biased way, that natural immunity is highly effective. And so we're, again, being told that natural immunity is inferior to vaccine-induced immunity. And they keep citing two studies, both of which been deemed what they call fatally flawed, both studies. Meanwhile, the 30-plus studies that completely conflict with that are being completely ignored. And so if, again, we look at it with a non-bias, with purity of heart, not with any intent, it's very clear that natural immunity is highly effective and most likely more effective. And traditionally speaking, that's been the case anyway, you know, so that's not surprising because there's so much that goes into natural immunity. It's not just an mRNA mimicker to try to get our bodies to see this as COVID, recognize the spike protein and hopefully develop some kind of immunity, most likely, which is going to be a B-cell-mediated immunity, which means that it's going to be very specific to that variant and less effective against other variants where a good non-leaky vaccine reduces transmissibility and it will invoke a very good T and B-cell response because T-cells are less specific, more broad, and very important to immunity against COVID and other infections as well. Okay. And what about the ongoing variants though? Well, it turns out that Omicron is much more transmissible. So it's much more contagious. And then we should all be fearful of that. But I said, hold on my blog of today. It says, hold on, just put the brakes on that for a second. Transmissibility doesn't mean that people are getting sicker and dire more. Matter of fact, what we're seeing is that there's far less severe illness, far less hospitalization, and far less death. So possibly, could this be a good thing? We all develop natural immunity. Very few people get sick. Their sickness might be treatable, less hospitalizations, less death. And we move through this very quickly. So I'm not ready to press on another fear-mongering bandwagon. And I'm actually pretty hopeful that this could be the start of something good. How do the different variants come about? Is this a process of natural selection, survival, evolution? And is there a chance that perhaps Omicron could be a blessing in that if it spreads faster, but is less dangerous? So we could use that towards gaining natural immunity. 
You're exactly right. So there's this whole concept of what's called competitive release. And in cancer, it's very important too. So what we learn is that not all viruses or all pathogens are bad. So sometimes a strain comes along, which is what Omicron is, and that, yes, it has many more mutations in it, you know, 30 plus than the original alpha or delta. So it does make it more difficult for a vaccine that was developed for the alpha variant to be effective against this broad spectrum of a new strain that has so many different mutations. However, as the, you know, it's a survival thing. A virus wants to survive. And because vaccines are leaky, there is always a chance that you're going to have mutations of that virus that change themselves for survival purposes. But because of this concept of competitive release, so what competitive release means that a certain population of less aggressive virus or less aggressive cancer in our system can actually become our friend because it's competing against the very virulent and much more severe Delta variant. So Omicron competes against Delta. Omicron is milder, less severe than Delta is. So that, in theory, is a good thing. Okay. I can hear everyone just take a big sigh of relief there because there is so much fear. And you said before, you know, fear is the greatest obstacle to healing, which I totally agree. Fear will take us down. According to Dr. Peter McCullough, the data shows that deaths from COVID are around 1%, whereas deaths from the vaccine are also around 1%. Isn't the vaccination program just adding another 1% of deaths to the statistic? It seems quite a risk for moderate protection against the virus. Yeah, I don't know those statistics. I haven't reviewed those statistics. I will not say that that is actually truthful. What I will say is that there are a population of people that the risk to benefit ratio may favor them to be taking a vaccine. If you're either morbidly obese or frail and elderly and have no access to optimizing your health, the benefits of the vaccine certainly look in favor of not doing the vaccine. However, if you are younger, not obese, because four out of five people dying of COVID are morbidly obese, many of which are class four obese, not just obese, class four. So if you eliminate that population and you see people that already do have robust health, the question now comes, is the vaccine potentially more problematic than COVID itself? And that, again, that's open for discussion. That's certainly not clear as day. It seems to be very clear for young boys that the vaccine risk for myocarditis and heart issues is greater from taking the vaccine than getting COVID itself. So I would say that there is a population that should strongly consider the vaccine. Nobody should be subjected to the vaccine because this concept that the vaccine does not reduce transmissibility. So why should why is it beneficial for someone to choose not to be vaccinated, to be forced to be vaccinated to protect that other person? Because they're not any more risky getting around somebody with the vaccine that gets COVID than somebody that 
doesn't have the vaccine. Matter of fact, I would argue that sometimes it could be more transmissible with somebody that has had the vaccine simply because people have been told that they're vaccinated and they're safe to be around and everything's good. And so they take more risks than people that are unvaccinated. So that's about all I could share. So what age, you said young boys, that would be in that category to question it, young boys, and what was that age bracket? Well, it's very clear that under the age of, say, 30, 35, that there is a greater risk with vaccine-related cardiovascular issues, particularly myocarditis. And so it's inflammation of the heart there. So that's definitely clear in that there are reported deaths from that, that certainly in a healthy young boy would should strongly consider that risk when they go for the vaccine. And we're not even sure how much the vaccine adverse effects are being reported. I can certainly say in my population, I have seen a lot of people who have been vaccinated that suffer anything from days of illness to weeks to months of illness as a result of the vaccine. And sometimes it's not the first vaccine. Sometimes it's the second. Sometimes it's the booster. Frequently what I have seen, which is an outbreak of shingles in people, that's something that is obviously very serious, particularly in older people. So I've seen that occur. And I've seen rashes and autoimmune conditions that have both been induced and been exacerbated in people that already have that. And what is it with boys under 35 or men under 35? What is it? What's going on for them that it would affect their heart so significantly? It has to do with the ACE2 receptors, which are the target for the spike protein because they're lacened all over that tissue. And so there is some kind of attack that goes on in there as a result of the vaccine. Okay, that's really interesting. I don't know, have you heard or seen many people who have had hormonal issues since getting the vaccine? Because I personally have heard many stories about this happening. So I'm curious if in your clinic you have seen this hormonal disruption for a lot of women. I have seen it and it's probably the most reported phenomenon from the vaccines is hormonal changes in women. I've had Women be concerned that have had breast cancer in the past, have had swollen lymph nodes in that area, thinking they have reoccurring breast cancer, and it's just an adverse effect from the, the vaccines. And so certainly there is some impact on why the vaccines are doing that. I don't have an explanation for that, but definitely that is something that I have seen personally firsthand, and it's the most reported adverse effect of the vaccines. Mm, wow. Now, my husband, he has mold and Lyme, and it's been something that he's been dealing with for many years. And many doctors are saying that people who have mold and Lyme should not get the vaccine. Again, is that something that you have seen in your clinic? And who else would you strongly advise not to get it? And what are some of the tests that we could potentially do before we made that decision? Well, what I... Do it, people with delicate systems, first of all, you know, people that react, you know, and they react to things are going to be more susceptible. The things that I do is I give them specific herbs that help their body regulate. And then certain herbs that have been traditionally used to support their lymph and immune system, like even 
Thuya, Phytolaca, Poke, Echinacea, Baptisia. So I'll do a few days of that. I tend to do a good amount of quercetin, both a couple of days before, during the vaccine, and for a few days after. Quercetin is a mast cell stabilizer. So some of the adverse effects people have are have to do with mast cells. So mast cells produce histamine, and people get more of that allergic reaction, which can be from some of the ingredients in the vaccine that have been added, polysorbate 80, for example. So that, and then I will give people a little booster of zinc, of a naturized form of zinc, a naturized form of vitamin D, and then adaptogens. And so, and then I have them take a bath that night, drink what's called a diaphoretic tea, which is a simple tea with herbs in it that induce perspiration. Even ginger can work, peppermint can work, but I use yarrow. I'll use elderflowers, linden flowers. Those, they drink the tea very hot. They take a bath with Epsom salts and mustard powder that night as well. So all of this helps to facilitate their immune system to have the best effect from the vaccine that they possibly can. And the quercetin and some of those immune modulators help to buffer and reduce the likelihood of what we would call as a more of an autoimmune response or an overactive response to the vaccine. So you're saying do that tea and the bath before they get the vaccine or after? I start the prep with the herbs and the quercetin a couple days before. The bath is the day of. The day of. Yeah. Okay. And then for someone who has been vaccinated, then what do they do ongoingly? Like how long do we need to keep taking these herbs and keep doing these things? Like what is your recommended time frame, and what would you suggest they do to support their body? Well, I keep everybody on a dosage of quercetin, zinc, and a form of uh, vitamin D, A, and K, that a combination then I pretty much have people on what I call a tonic herb formula. It may be an astragalus-based one. It may be a medicinal mushroom-based one. And then I have people on an adaptogen formula. So those are pretty much, like I said, the root system. Like when I build something, I'm saying, what am I doing? You know, what's my foundation? What's your bass and drummer doing? What's your rhythm section like, you know, of your band? So I, I build things first like that. Then I get more into topical things that are more individualized. Now for the vaccine, what I call a little protocol, they will continue that for two or three days unless they have symptoms. And like, say they get flu-like symptoms, then they'll continue that bath therapy and those herbs until that goes away. That's what I'll do. If they get other symptoms, like say rashes, which I've seen, I'll bump up their quercetin, which will have a better effect on what we call mast cell stabilization and reducing that that excess histamine that might be occurring as well. Yes, because I've heard many people have big reactions. And then I've had many people say that they've felt nothing. So it really is very individual. And I will say, Melissa, that we are very close in parts of the world to getting the one vaccine that I actually like, which is called Novavax. So that vaccine was approved in Indonesia, approved in the Philippines. The European Union is about to approve it. And it's a protein types of vaccines we've had for decades now. So it's not a a brand new technology. They have made a mimicker of the COVID based on a moth. And so it's a protein vaccine. It's not an mRNA or DNA vaccine. And then the adjuvant that it's with 
is an herbal extract, a saponin-rich extract from the plant called soap bark, which grows in Colombia and Peru. And so that plant extract is really what induces the immune response. The protein mimicking COVID that they put with it causes our bodies to see something foreign that it wants to get rid of, but then the adjuvant boosts the T and B cell response. And that vaccine has been shown to be effective against all variants, including a brand new study with Omicron and Omicron. And then it has been in phase three trials, been flying colors with very safe, low adverse effects from it as well. So it's the one vaccine that I'm very, I think, highly of. But I've seen a little bit about the inclusion of RNA from COVID and even HIV in the Novavax. Is that right or no? No, that's not right. Okay, cool. So for someone who may be sitting on the fence about getting the vaccination, what would you say to them? Well, it's a very personal decision, first of all. Don't make decisions based in fear. And don't make decisions based because someone told you. That's that's a belief. You have to make it based in faith. So you have to do your own work. And who do you trust? So do you trust the powers to be to mandate something and tell you that it's good for you? Well, they just stopped telling people to take aspirin. So for 30 years, anyone with a history or a predisposition to heart disease has been told prophylactically to take aspirin and that it was benign just two weeks ago. They now have come out, the powers to be have come out and say, no longer do we recommend taking aspirin as a prophylactic, that the risk is greater than the reward after 30 years. So I just want people to know, you know, I was born in a time, I was born in 1959, when all of a sudden, we mothers were told not to nurse anymore. I asked my mom, why didn't you nurse me? My Italian mother, I'm saying, why didn't you nurse me, mom? And she goes, well, the doctor said we have formula now and it's better. I said, is there a doctor today or anyone on this planet that would say that formula is better than mother's milk? Absolutely not. But that's what they told people. Then my first years studying diet and nutrition, you know, 1970s, all of a sudden cholesterol was blamed for heart disease. So what did we see happen? Eggs contain cholesterol. Therefore, eggs were deemed this horrific food for heart health with zero research. Zero, big fat zero, nothing to back that up. They did the cardinal sin, which is done all the time in medicine, the cardinal sin, to theorize before one has data and sensibly one twist facts to suit theories rather than build theories upon fact finding. That's Sherlock Holmes that said that. So we can't, you know, I don't trust anything that the powers to be say. I've been in this field for a long time. I can go, we can spend hours and I can give you examples of in oncology alone where people have been told things and now it's not true anymore. So people have to attach to where their faith is in. They have to make decisions based on purity of heart, their intellect, you know, like Einstein says, the intuitive mind is the sacred gift. The rational intellect is the faithful servant. So the servant is the mind, we have to use our mind. We have to execute all of our mind, but then we have to go to our heart and pray and look for truth. And then that's what we should use as our guide. Absolutely. Absolutely. I've found for me personally, whenever I have ever made a decision out of fear, it's always backfired. (laughs) 
And whenever you make a decision from that place of truth from deep in your heart, I mean, that's all we can really do. And when it comes to anything, being bullied and fear-mongered into making any decision, whether that's about how we parent or our career or our relationships or our health, whenever we make those decisions from that place, I know for me personally, the universe always comes around and gives you a little kick up the bum. That's right. Even if we just take the beginning of COVID, I published today, I think my 40th blog on COVID. And I keep saying I'm tired of doing COVID blogs, but (laughs) then something, and then I just wrote another one that's on why is Africa so healthy, basically, why the most poorest continent in the world and malnourished, and yet they're going to come out the best continent on COVID. But if we go back to the beginning, what's the first thing that we were being told? Get inside, stay in your house. When I wrote a blog on get uh, the opposite, get outside. Our country closed all the parks, all the beaches. Nobody was supposed to go outside. And you lock down inside with no ventilation, no fresh air. It's the opposite. Why didn't we learn from the Spanish flu? 1917, 18, where they found when they built outdoor hospitals that the people in the outdoor hospitals simply by being outdoors got better and the people in the indoor hospitals didn't. That simple little observation, and yet we still don't learn. I said, outdoors, COVID doesn't really spread outdoors. Why is everyone so afraid of the outdoors? And then people, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to say masks aren't useful. Certainly from the standpoint of diminishing the COVID droplets, yes, for sure, the COVID aerosols to less of an extent. But I've always argued that if I could be in a room with 10 people, a small room, and I had the choice between a mask on me or no mask and doors wide open and windows wide open and air blowing through that room, I would always take the room with air blowing through over the mask myself. And so I've always believed that you know, being outdoors is extremely important and a safe zone for us. Yet we were told for months and months and months, again, no research, no research. I mean, when I, that's why I keep asking people and people just say things. I said, show me the research. I said, I'm a research data fanatic. I mean, I, I spend so much time gathering and reading research, both not just reading it, but trying to gain an understanding of what we call the three R's. You know, when you see research, you have to look at it with the three R's in mind. One is rigor, two is repetition, and three is robustness. So was the study done on 10 people or 100,000 people? So 100,000 is more meaningful than 10. So things like that you have to look at because again, A lot of these COVID studies, because they're being pushed out so quickly, are flawed. They're not peer-reviewed at all. Like we're being told, people that aren't vaccinated still pose the greatest threat with Omicron with no research. Even if they just said, Melissa, we believe it to be, like we, we think that it's going to be, but they say it as if they know. It's a different thing to say something like, you're the authority, you're God Almighty telling us this stuff based on what? So anyway, I think we, you know, we all should come from a place of humility and that's a good starting point and not from a place of ego and power and control. Yeah, absolutely. 
And we do need to be, I know for me personally, using definite statements like always and everyone and this is the data. And, you know, it's like it's this is the gospel. This is the Bible that, you know, my husband and I are pulling each other up often when we say, you always do this. And and he'll say, do I always do like just little <laughs> things, just little things like that. So we do really need to be mindful of our language and what other people are saying as well if it's this definite. And another thing I love about you is how thorough your posts are. And I want to encourage everyone to go to your website and read all 40 of the posts on COVID and everything that you share because it's so important. But we truly can't deny the fact that now more than ever, we need to return to nature. We need to, yes, get outside, like you said, get outside, do some forest bathing and get in the ocean and fresh air and sunshine and nutrition and clean water and our relationships and doing work that lights us up and meditation, all of these things that are free to all of us. Well, I mean, you have to pay for food unless you grow all of your own, but everything else going outside is free and moving your body is free and getting fresh air is free. So doing all of these things is so important and is only going to boost our immune system and our health and our happiness and every area of our life. I want to talk to you about shedding. What have you discovered on shedding? Because there's lots of gray around this topic and I would love to hear your thoughts on it. Is it a real thing? What can we do about it? I think it's still gray, to be honest with you. I don't think it's completely clear. And shedding, there's also another side to it. It's like we have people that get COVID. And I think what we're not talking about is a lot of people are asymptomatic for three, five days, and they don't show COVID yet. They even test negative. However, they actually have the COVID and they're already shedding it at that point. So I even question the whole ability to really test effectively and then quarantine because We don't often we're quarantine people when it's too late. They've already been around too many people. That's number one. And how I think some people for sure shed more than other people. I think some people are more susceptible to getting COVID. Is it possible that 10 people in the room could have COVID? There's 100 people in the room and it's a closed room. They're there for an hour and a half and they're all mingling with each other. Do all 90 people come out with COVID? No. There's people that were in that room that were just exposed as everyone else, and they just don't get it. I mean, I'm one of those people. I just don't get the flu. I just don't get sick. You can cough all over me, and I'm still not going to get sick. Why that is, I don't know why. When I was in school, at elementary school, at the end of the year, you know, at the end of the year, I got a trophy every year saying no absentees, basically, you know. So I think there's just some people that have natural resistance to things. And I always say the first step to anything is awareness. You can't want your health to be better until you're aware and acknowledge that there's something you need to work on, you know, and then you have the desire to make it better. You know, do you have, do you really want to change? I know a lot of your work, I've kind of studied it as well in this whole idea of really being able to change some of the program behaviors that are entrenched in us. I always say, how do we find our divinity? Because underneath all of our masks, all the things that we wear, our shells, whether it be our personalities, our looks, the color of our skin. I said, when you die, do you think any of that matters? Absolutely not. 
And so one of the ways that I try to live my life and I tell my patients, both those with cancer and those without, I said, when you meditate, and I know that you meditate, I said, try meditating from your deathbed. Just just pretend you're getting, you have moments away and all of a sudden you're going to enter the great mystery. And when you think back on your life, did it really mean what you thought it was going to mean? You know, did that, is that really, did all the things that you wanted it to mean really matter? And, and, and I think most people, I mean, we're all going to fall short, I think, because I think as humans, we're greatly underachieving our capacity. And I mostly mean our capacity to love, because again, fear gets in the way. And in Madiri care, love is the number one medicine. And I love plants because plants, more than anything, love us. They have selfless love. They don't ask for anything in return. And the plants that are the most healing are the ones we keep trying to get rid of, <laughs> which are the weeds. How many, I always tell people, how many millions of dollars do we spend every year trying to kill the dandelions in our lawn? And I have a mug that says, if you can't beat them, eat them. Celebrate dandelion, it says. I said, dandelions are one of, when my mother came from Italy, they had no money. They had to go outside and pick dandelions and make salad with dandelions. And I said, well, they, they were the lucky ones, right? <laughs> because dandelions are a powerhouse of nutrition in, in many, many ways. And yet, so we just do so many things that just make no sense. And we talk about all the ways we want to clean up the environment. How about planting more bushes and trees and flowers? Because plants, by nature, clean our environment. Plants clean our soil. They clean our air. They give us oxygen. They create secondary metabolites because they're invaded with viruses. You think you're a plant outside? You can't run and go forage for food or water. You can't take something to defend yourself against the virus, you know, to kill the virus. So what plants have to do is work hard to develop sophisticated through their intelligence, sophisticated of what we call secondary metabolites that then build a defense system that's very strong. And through a concept called xeno, xenohormesis is the most beautiful science. So xenohormesis is the study of plants that have taken on stress that when we ingest them, we benefit from their stress. So we, hormesis is when we get a adaptive stress response. So all stress isn't bad. A little bit of stress, like even viral stress, immunological stress, physical stress, enough that we then build an adaptive response and we get stronger because of that. So plants are doing this all the time. And xenohormesis is that we ingest these plants that have been out in the wild and they've had to combat things, very bad things, and they've done it successfully. Now we're ingesting the plants, ingesting those nutrients, those compounds, and our bodies are now protected. But we didn't have to go through the stress. The plants did it for us. So that's the most beautiful science that I can think of. Mother Nature is just magical, isn't she? Yes. Frank Lloyd White says, I believe in God, and I spell it N-A-T-U-R-E. Yeah. I love that. That's really beautiful. <laughs> what about the spike protein shedding? We spoke about shedding from COVID, but what about spike protein shedding? Is that real? Talk to me about that. I don't see any scientific evidence at this point that it's real. I hear mention of it, but I don't see any evidence. All I can say is that I believe that just because you're vaccinated, 
doesn't mean that you're safe or people around you are safe. That's what I'm trying to say. Vaccinated people, potentially, there's no study that shows that unvaccinated people pose more threat than vaccinated people. And I don't know if we'll ever know the answer to that, just like the source of COVID to begin with, (laughs) where it really came from. But I don't like to comment on things that I don't know the answer to that. And I haven't seen solid scientific evidence to support that at this point. Okay. Yeah, that's fair enough. You wrote a blog post about the antiviral properties of some essential oils, and you mentioned essential oils earlier. Now, can you talk to us about the effectiveness of essential oils during a pandemic? So essential oils are some of the most powerful components within the plant. It's what often we see as the essence that give off the aroma of the plant is the essential oils. But in those essential oils are very, very potent compounds. And those compounds are part of why the plant is protected. So when I mentioned secondary metabolites, that the wild plants like wild oregano or wild thyme or wild roses have far greater scent than cultivated plants. So basil that has a great aromatic scent to it is more medicinal just because you can smell the medicine in the plant. So those compounds make up some of the totality of what a plant offers as far as providing medicine to us. And essential oils in particular tend to be potent antimicrobials, some of the most potent antimicrobials. They tend to be very effective against fungal, mold, like aspergillus infections, which are mold infections, viruses, and bacteria alike. And they've been highly studied as well. So when it comes to things that have been studied against, say, coronaviruses, maybe not COVID-19, you're looking at sweet orange oil, thyme oil, tea tree oil, oregano oil, clove oil, cinnamon oil, Those are just to name a few, even lavender and peppermint oil have good qualities as well. And you don't even have to ingest them. So one of the, I developed a blend, I call it Renew for our, at our Madiri clinic, and it has a lot of those oils in it. So I'll just take a few drops, put it on my wrist, go like this, go like this around my neck. And then I tell people to put a couple of drops on their mask because now they're kind of breathing that aroma in. And it just, it smells great, first of all, it smells heavenly and, you know, it's going to have benefit. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, absolutely. I love essential oils so much. Oh, they're just so beautiful. Yes. I have another blend that I developed. I use it as an anointing oil. So it's called oil of anointment. And so it's made up of all what I call the most sacred essential oils, frankincense, myrrh, spikenard, and nutmeg. And so it's a blend that I use for helping people when they're ill or even when they're passing on as a way to help them in that transition. So two of the most sacred are frankincense and myrrh. Mm -hmm. That's what they brought baby Jesus. That's right. (laughs) I just want to go back. I have another question regarding mold and Lyme people who, this is my husband, he falls into that category. And A lot of the research says that they shouldn't get vaccinated. Is that due to the risk of runaway inflammation? And why would that be? 
I think if there is a risk for that, it's because they're already immunocompromised. So anybody that's living with an active infection that their body hasn't eradicated is already immunocompromised for a number of reasons. First of all, their immune system is still trying to meet this thing and it's not eradicating it. So the immune system is a little bit been, been overdriving, trying to deal with the issue at hand. Then what couples with that is the exhaust, you know, the waste material produced from the overactive immune system, which is inflammation, which is oxidative stress. So there's more oxidative stress, more inflammation, more immune system overdrive. Then what occurs is the body fatigues, you know, and then the fatigued body makes all of those things work less efficient. So we're less efficient at dealing with free radicals, less efficient at modulating inflammation, because now our endocrine system is tired and our immune system is tired. So that could be the reason why they're more potentially susceptible to adverse effects with the vaccine. But again, with me, that starting point is about building the root system and strengthening the life force. And even if that doesn't have a direct effect on mold or infection, it has an indirect effect. It what sustains us. It's what sustains us. So sometimes you have to do things that help you in the short run, but they're really not helping you in the long run. And sometimes you have to really get into the root system. You see a diseased tree, you have to get in the soil and figure out what you need to do, not just topically cut off sick branches, you know, so that's just the way that I think and all traditional models think that way. So every model, whether it's traditional Chinese medicine, Ayurvedic medicine, what we have here in the West is eclectic medicine and physical medicalism. The commonality of all ancient models is the concept of the life force, the concept of a root system within our body, and then working in harmony to strengthen that. That's the commonality. And yet we completely ignore that when it comes to our health. If COVID hasn't taught us one thing is that why is it like, even if you want to push vaccines and say, this is the miracle we all should be on. Why haven't you acknowledged that, that people with less than optimal health are the ones that are getting the sickest and dying? Why can't we acknowledge that people that are morbidly obese are faring the worst with it and why don't we want to address that and figure out how to get people healthier? Oh, by the way, since COVID has been with us, obesity and childhood obesity has gone up significantly at a rate never, ever seen before. So we have more obese children than ever in our lifetime. Why do you think that is? They're staying home, sitting in front of screens and playing games and not being physically active and then eating poorly secondarily. But they're really, they're not physically active anymore. Yeah, it's such a shame. In the end, it's going to be a funny time to look back on, but all I can keep thinking is that why isn't there anyone wanting to look at this to figure out how we can start making our planet and each of us healthier in very basic ways? I feel like it's such a missed opportunity from all of the governments They could have been educating on health and holistic health and really inspiring people to get well and get back to nature. Imagine if they did that. Let's take sunlight and vitamin D. Do you know that I have 52 scientific papers on vitamin D and COVID, all showing that not vitamin D doesn't treat COVID, but when people normalize their vitamin D levels, 
they have less COVID incidents, they have less severe COVID, they have less hospitalizations, they have less death based on multiple meta-analysis papers that just keep coming out by the day, but no mention by anyone. Just only get your vaccine. So I have more faith in the powers to be if they could at least share a little bit of that information with the public. And then zinc has almost the same amount of research on it. Why do you think, what's the most common symptom that people have COVID? What's the number one symptom? Flu-like symptoms. Nope, number one is loss of sense of smell and taste. Right. That's number one. That's what distinguishes it from the flu, actually. Okay. So why are people losing their sense of smell and taste with COVID? Because first of all, they have low levels of zinc. So their reservoir or what's called the zinc pools are low to begin with. We get COVID and our T and B cells, what do they need more than any other nutrient? Zinc. So they go into action. They said, all right, it's like a car. And then now the car has got to go from idle to pressing down. I'm going to need a little bit more gas. So let me start using up more gas. It goes into those zinc pools and it drains the pools of zinc. Now people have no zinc and their immune system is exhausted and can't work. And again, zinc is highly, I test zinc in almost all of my patients and 70% of patients are zinc deficient and over 90% of cancer patients are zinc deficient. One of the commonalities of zinc is to see high copper in low zinc. That's one of the things that we look for because copper drives cancer growth and angiogenesis and zinc is helpful at the immune system's ability to combat cancer. So it sounds like most people could do with some more vitamin D and some more zinc and, you know, we can just go outside and get the vitamin D and we can supplement with it if we need to as well. And you can even look at what foods are high in zinc as well. And don't wear sunscreen and try to keep as much skin exposed when you go outside. So the key to getting vitamin D is to have as much of the body exposed to the sun and not to use any sunblock and not to have extremely low cholesterol because your cholesterol is going to synthesize your vitamin D. That doesn't mean to burn. So here's again the thing. We were told years ago, stay out of the sun, otherwise you'll get skin cancer. You know, again, a very blatant statement, which it wasn't entirely true. What you don't want to do is have your skin burn. You can get as much sun as you could ever think of as long as your skin's not burning. And what I mean, but don't put sunblock on, just let your skin slowly acclimate to the sun. Now, if you have to go out in the sun, and it's in the middle of the day, yes, you should protect yourself by all means, but you should also be getting gradual sun exposure. Let your skin get a little bit of stress, that adaptive stress, but not burnt. Then it builds up its pigments and it builds a natural resistance to the sun. Meanwhile, you're accumulating good amounts of vitamin D. And the darker your skin by nature, the more sun you need to develop vitamin D. The lighter your skin, the less. Yeah, that's so interesting because my husband and I, I need a lot more sun than him. So he will burn a lot quicker than I do. So years ago, when we were traveling around Europe, we would be laying out and getting our sun and swimming. And then he knew exactly when it was time for him to sit under the umbrella where I could still stay out there and swim, you know, for a bit longer. And everyone's so different. Exactly. That's again, why things need to be personalized. And people need a little common sense with everything. And they always test everything in tradition. Remember, I went back to the thematic elements. Whenever I see anything, even if I read a scientific journal, I always go back to tradition and ancient wisdom. 
and say, well, what did people do for hundreds and thousands of years? And is that in line with what science is telling us or is it very different? Because people develop habits and do things that tend to be very good for us from a long, long history of learning things, from observation, from studying. And so I much more trust ancient traditional wisdom above and beyond anything else. But I look at everything else. I just look at it with a lens that means to be looked at alongside the traditional wisdom lens. Yeah, absolutely. Look at both. Yes. Let's pretend you have a magic wand now and you could put one book in the school curriculum of every high school around the world. Besides your incredible books, <laughs> what is one book you would choose? And let's pretend yours are already in the curriculum because they absolutely should be. And this could be on any topic. It doesn't have to be health related. It could be on spirituality. It could be on relationships. So I would say, good question. So the book I would choose is a book written by Orist Bedridge, B-E-D-R-I-G, Bedridge, and it is called Celebrate Your Divinity. It's a great book. He is alive still. He is Ukrainian, and he is a very famous physicist. So he's written many, many books in physics, but he's also written books in theology and spirituality. And that book in particular is very broad. I mean, it covers every faith on the planet since the beginning of time. And it's just wisdom. You know, it's just common sense and wisdom that comes through. So I would say that would be my book of choice, Celebrate Your Divinity. I love that. I'm going to get it. That sounds amazing. And I'll link to that as well as your incredible books in the show notes. Now, I'd love to hear about how your day looks. I absolutely love hearing about people's morning routines and rituals that they do. So can you talk us through a quote-unquote typical day in your life? Do you meditate? When do you eat? What do you eat? When do you work out? Can you kind of talk us through a standard day for you? Yeah, I do have some routine in my day, that's for sure. So I do like that. When I get up, I typically am the first one up in the house maybe a half hour to even 40 minutes before my wife gets up. And so the house is quiet and I like that. And I could do anything from practice my instrument. You know, I'm a bass player, so I'll start to do that. Or I will do things that have to do with, I won't say a conscious effort of meditation where I meditate, but I practice something called Lectio Divina. Selectio so Divino is more a purposeful way of reading, and you will read a passage, like the book I just mentioned, Celebrate Your Divinity. That's not a book that I suggest to read just head to toe. You read a page or paragraph. So I like to go into my library, and I'll read something, maybe a paragraph from that book, and then I'll think about it for a few minutes, then I'll reread it. And then I'll think about it again, and then I'll reread it a third time. So Lectio Divino, you always read the same passage or the same paragraph three times. The first time is you're trying to understand it. The second time, you're trying to see a deeper message in what's being said. And the third time, it's about how is this talking to me? And then I go through what I call my own personal thoughts, which typically be is that I think you make a life by how you serve. So I'm always asking that I only want to be better at being myself and how can I serve both in small ways. I feel a great calling to change the world, to 
to build this medical model, to validate unitive medicine. But at the same time, I just, like Mother Teresa, just look at the person right in front of you and do what you can right in that moment. It's not about ground things, you know. So I do a lot of introspective dwelling, and then I'll practice my instrument, and then I usually start to go to work at that point. And I'll start to go to work and write, because before I go to my office to start seeing patients, I'm normally putting in anywhere from about 90 minutes, typically on average. I'll, I'll look at all my journals, I'll do my research, I might do some of my writing, I write monographs, I collect data, I respond to emails, and then I go off to work, I go to my office and I see patients. And that's what I do most of my week is with patients still. Then I'm developing the academy with our academy team. I'm formulating things for Natura Health Products. I'm the formulator and president of the company. So I have to deal with, with certain aspects of that. And then at night, I might go to the studio and record music. I might rehearse. I might, I'm a great cook. I love to cook. So I do the majority of the cooking in the house. I have two kids, three kids, actually. One lives in Japan. So I try to, t I love basketball. So the only sport I really pay attention to is basketball. And I love to watch basketball and I, it's my favorite sport by far. So that's my one enjoyment that I do. And so that's a little bit about my day. I, I'm a real workaholic, but I believe in the John Wooden quote, which says, be quick, but never be in a hurry. So I see my life as a mission and vocation, not really as work. So my work and play are all one and the same. It's all but a circle in my life. Mm, beautiful. And you are based in Oregon, is that correct? Yes, I'm originally from Connecticut, right side of out of New York. So I still have a huge patient population there. Many of our board members are there. So I'm very connected to the Northeast still. But I live in Ashland, Oregon. Our clinic is here in Ashland, Oregon. And I originally moved here about 23 years ago to initially set up a retreat center for cancer patients. But I did a couple of retreats, but I never really went in that direction because that was right about the time I decided that, no, my calling really is to change the medical model, make a new model, which will make the existing model obsolete. So that's been my main goal over the last 20 years. Beautiful. And you mentioned you have three kids. How old are they? So one will be 29 on Christmas. She lives in Japan with her husband. One is 15. So my oldest is Clarissa Noel. My second is Stella Francesca, who's 15. Then I have Coltrane DeFrancesco, which is 13. Wow. So beautiful. Oh, I love and that. And a wife named Jennifer, who is the, I saw you wrote something about the octopus movie. So it's so funny that my wife, I nicknamed her the octopus because she's got her tentacles and everything that I do. So she's got that because octopuses are very smart and intelligent, as, as you learned in that movie. Yes, the octopus teacher, my octopus teacher. It's such a great movie. It's amazing. Okay, I have three rapid fire questions for you now. Are you ready? Yes. What is one thing that we can do today for our health? Breathe. I love it. I would just elaborate on that and just say that most people don't breathe correctly. Most people are shallow breathers. It's very important to me to get people to breathe through their nose when they sleep at night as well. Most people are mouth breathers. So breathing is our celestial nourishment and nothing replaces it. So breathe. I absolutely agree. For many years, I taped my mouth so that I became a nose breather and not a mouth breather. And I have a daughter who was born this year. And one of the first things that my osteo and my chiro 
said to me was, you know, check her at nighttime and, and when she's sleeping and make sure she's breathing through her nose and not her mouth. So it's something that is underrated, that's for sure. Okay, the next one, what is one thing that we can do for more wealth in our life? So more abundance in all areas of our life. Be kind to others and share with others whatever you can and it will all come back to you. Absolutely. And what's one thing we can do for more love in our life? To be love. And I call it agape love. So in, in English, we only have one word for the word love, where almost every other language has a multitude of words that are called love. And so agape love is selfless love. And love isn't always emotionally feel good. Sometimes a great caregiver is pouring their heart and soul into somebody to try to keep them alive and do what they can to help them in their hour of need. And they're sacrificing their own health for that. And emotionally, it doesn't feel good. So love isn't always attached to an emotion, but it goes deeper. It goes deeper than that. So don't be afraid to love more because that's the number one healer is love. More love is always a good idea. Donnie, this has been so amazing. I could talk to you for hours. This has been just so much fun. Is there anything else? that you want to share? Any last parting words of wisdom or anything that you wanted to talk about? I think that we covered a lot of stuff. I think I would just say that as a musician, that I didn't get to say a lot about that, but how music serves the unitive model that I've created is twofold. One is that the musical ears is so conducive to medicine in that as a musician, you're listening to all that's around you, the other musicians, and often if there's an audience, the audience, and you're listening to everything inside of you, and it's all happening like this. It's spontaneous, and you're not using your mind, but everything that you practiced in your whole life is up here, but it comes out through your heart and through your soul in your music. So that concept, that musical mind, like Einstein said, if he wasn't a physicist, he would have been a musician. So that that ability translates very beautifully over to medicine. And then the concept of music having order and improvisation going at the same time is also very important to medicine, that you need some pillars, you need some constants, you need some order, you need some harmonic sense, some rhythm sense, but you also need the ability to improvise. And so I would say that the musical concepts translate so beautifully over to medicine. And then not to mention that music in and of itself is one of the greatest healers. A recent meta-analysis paper reviewed many modalities, including medications, acupuncture, all kinds of things, and what turned out, what translated over to the most useful thing for people with Alzheimer's disease, and the number one was music therapy. Music had the greatest positive impact over anything else for Alzheimer's patients. That is amazing. What music in particular? Well, when you listen to my music, you'll hear jazz influence. It's very melodic. One of my favorite living musicians actually composed the second song on my CD, and that's Gino Vanelli. So Gino Vanelli is a great influence of mine musically. But a lot of the great jazz musicians, particularly John Coltrane, 
So I, I love jazz music. I love classical music. And I love some contemporary music that I would say my contemporary music, whether it be a lot of funk and R&B, Marvin Gaye, Earth, Wind & Fire, all of that music, even Steely Dan. I listen to all of that style of music. But really, I'm a jazz lover, to be honest with you. But John Coltrane, I mean, I named my son after him. John Coltrane is my favorite musician, a lot because of his quest in turning, transforming jazz music into spiritual music, because I do believe that at the crust, that's what it is. And all music is really something that sits between heaven and earth. And for me, that like the Our Father says, on earth as it is in heaven, our greatest quest on earth is to reflect and meditate on heaven and do everything we can to make it here on earth. And music does that. Absolutely. Like if you were just think for a second, if you were this great creator of everything and you decided, let I'm going to make this planet and we'll just see what happens. Now, all of a sudden humans develop and we have, you know, cave people. And then as humans evolve and evolve and evolve, if I was the creator, the most impressive thing in the world to me would be the fact that by free will, that these humans were capable of making this thing called music in such profound ways. You know, whether it be the Rite of Spring by Stravinsky or some great jazz quartet playing, it's just so impressive. It's one of the most impressive things to me. I absolutely agree with you. And as you can see, there's a saxophone in the background there. My husband is an incredible saxophonist and loves jazz music. And we, pre-baby, had jazz music playing in our house all day, all day long. Now that we've got a newborn baby who sleeps, has two naps a day, we don't have the jazz music blasting like we used to, but you have inspired me to, when she's awake, get it blasting again because it is so magic. It is so healing. It is so powerful. Beautiful. Well, I hope you enjoy that CD. It, it will be very different and uh, for you. And there is some great saxophone playing on it as well. And even saxophone and bass melody together and uh, one song called Heaven Awaits, which is clarinet and bass melody together as well. So I'm already working on a second one. So I'm about halfway done with a, a whole new, you know, COVID really got me because I stopped gigging as much. And so I really worked on my own compositions in a way that I never worked on before. So I really discovered the composer in me since COVID. Oh, beautiful. It's beautiful that that has come out of you. Donnie, this has been so awesome. You are helping so many people. You are serving so many people with all of your work, your books, your website, everything that you do, your music, every single thing that you do, you are serving and you're helping so many people. So I want to know what I personally and the listeners can do to give back and serve you. How can we serve you today? Well, you can look at what I'm trying to do and become part of it, possibly. I mean, my Madiri is a non-for-profit, and so we do take donations, and so we're trying to build an academy. And so I would say go to the Madiri website, madiricenter.org, and look at what we're doing. We're doing a trial on dogs, 100 dogs with B-cell lymphoma. We're going to be starting this coming year. So we're working with the Children's Hospital of Orange County, where we looked at doing a breast cancer research with the Ohio State. So 
we're doing our best every day and we're a great and worthy cause to contribute to. So I would say, please just look at the Madiri website and look at what we're doing. And, and at the very least, just give us a prayer and a thought. And that's worth a lot too. And all 100% of the proceeds of my CD, Heaven Awaits, goes to the Madiri Foundation. So people can just go on Spotify or any of those and just put in my name or put in the CD and listen to samples of the songs. And even buying a single song for 99 cents helps the helps support the foundation. I love that. And we'll link to all of your incredible music in the show notes as well. Donnie, thank you so much for being here and for sharing all of your wisdom. Oh, you're so welcome. It's been great. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much. I got so much out of this episode. I absolutely loved this conversation. And what really inspired me the most is to tune back in with my body, to trust my body, to trust its innate wisdom, to turn to nature to support us. Nature is always there, always there. And we can turn to that for support and guidance. So I hope you got a lot out of this conversation. And if you did, please subscribe to the show and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts because that means that we can inspire and educate even more people together. And it also means that all of my episodes will pop up in your feed so that you don't have to go searching for them. And come and tell me on Instagram at Melissa Ambrosini what you got from this episode. I absolutely love hearing from you all. So please come and share your key takeaways with me. And before I go, I just wanted to say thank you so much for being here for wanting to be the best, the healthiest, and the happiest version of yourself, and for showing up today for you. You rock. Now, if there's someone in your life that you can think of that would really benefit from this episode, please share it with them right now. You can take a screenshot, share it on your social media, email it to them, text it to them, do whatever you've got to do to get this in their ears. And until next time, don't forget that love is sexy, Healthy is liberating and wealthy isn't a dirty word.